Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, and throw in our own thoughts, opinions, and personal experiences where applicable, and put everything together to share with all of you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Vanessa. Today's episode, episode number 92, is Mixed DNA and Cuba. I believe this is the first, hopefully of many, that we've done an entire episode on just one specific country, and we've chosen Cuba as the first to highlight because we feel like it's a really misunderstood place. For Canadians, it's an all-inclusive travel destination, but it kind of gets a bad rep for its cuisine, which we'll talk about in this episode. And for Americans, visiting Cuba, as of the most recent legal definition, isn't permitted. That's something else we'll talk about in this episode. Cuba has an interesting history and a volatile relationship with the U.S., and two of the nation's most notorious Cubans ever have been Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, each with their own unique stories. Nevertheless, it's a beautiful country with a passion for family, baseball, music, and food, and we hope to do right by Cuba during this episode. I've had the pleasure of visiting Cuba, I believe it's been four times now, and it's unlike any other place I've visited in the world for many reasons. But before I get to my own personal experiences being a tourist in Cuba, let's take a look at the country itself and its rich history. Cuba officially, the Republic of Cuba, is an island country comprising the island of Cuba as well as Isla de la Juventud and several minor archipelagos. Cuba is located where the Northern Caribbean Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic Ocean meet. Havana is the largest city and the capital, and other major cities include Santiago de Cuba and Camagüey. Cuba is the second most populous country in the Caribbean after Haiti, with over 11 million inhabitants. The island of Cuba was inhabited as early as the 4th millennium BC, with the Guanajuato Bay and Taino people inhabiting the area at the time of the Spanish colonization in the 15th century. From that point, it was a colony of Spain, and slavery was abolished in 1886, remaining a Spanish colony until the Spanish-American War of 1898 when Cuba was occupied by the United States and gained its independence in 1902. In 1940, Cuba implemented the new constitution, but mounting political unrest culminated in a coup in 1952 and the subsequent dictatorship of Fulencio Batista, which was later overthrown in January 1959 by the 26th of July movement during the Cuban Revolution, which afterwards established the communist rule under the leadership of Fidel Castro. The country was a point of contention during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States, and a nuclear war nearly broke out during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Cuba faced a severe economic downturn in the 1990s, known as the Special Period. If you're like us, you've probably heard many things about Cuba in passing or in reading or maybe from movies. I personally really love Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, a very underrated movie in my personal opinion. And there are a lot of things we hear about Cuba without really diving deeper into the history of what they mean or what happened, etc. So to keep the history lesson as brief as possible, we'll teach as quickly as possible. Just so we're all on like a level ground knowledge and history-wise as we go through the remainder of the episode. Let's start with the Spanish-American War of 1898. This war began in the aftermath of the internal explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in Cuba leading to the United States' intervention in the Cuban War of Independence. 
The war led to the United States emerging predominant in the Caribbean and resulted in the U.S. acquisition of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. It also led to the United States' involvement in the Philippine Revolution, later to the Philippines-American War, which I didn't even know there was such a war until I did this episode. Your next mini-history lesson is on the U.S. occupation of Cuba which was a provisional military government in Cuba that was established in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War in 1898, when Spain ceded Cuba to the United States. This period is referred to as the first occupation of Cuba, to distinguish it from the second occupation, from 1906 to 1909, also by the United States Army. Next up to know about is dictator Fulencio Batista, who was actually born Ruben Zalvidar born 1901, died 1973. He was a Cuban military officer and politician who served as the elected president of Cuba from 1940 to 1944 and as a military dictator from 1952 to 1959 until he was overthrown in the Cuban Revolution. If we choose to do an episode on dictators in the future, which we should, he'll definitely make the list. But for now, that's all we need to know about. The 26th of July movement was a Cuban vanguard revolutionary organization and later a political party led by Fidel Castro. The movement's name commemorated the failed 1953 attack on the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba, part of an attempt to overthrow the dictator Batista that Vanessa just spoke about. The Cuban Revolution was a military and political effort to overthrow the government of Cuba between 53 and 59. It began after the 52 Cuban coup d'etat which placed Batista as the head of state and the family mass strike in opposition that followed. After failing to contest Batista in court, Fidel Castro organized an armed attack on the Moncada barracks. The rebels were arrested, and while in prison, they formed the 26th of July movement. The Cuban Missile Crisis was a 13-day confrontation between the United States and the Soviet Union when American deployments of nuclear missiles in Italy were matched by the Soviet deployments of the nuclear missiles in Cuba. The missiles in Cuba were believed to have been equipped with nuclear warheads, and they would have been able to hit targets in the United States and Canada. Due to a lot of hostility with the U.S., Cuba and the Soviet Union were pretty friendly, and the Soviet Union provided Cuba with loads of oil, food, and machinery. But, when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s, Cuba fell into a large-scale economic collapse. There were some high points. In the mid-1990s, thanks to Chavez Venezuela, who was their biggest trading partner for a while, and into the 2000s, Cuba-Russia relations improved under the presidency of Putin. The United States embargo against Cuba prevents U.S. businesses and businesses organized under U.S. law or majority owned by U.S. citizens from conducting trade with Cuban interests. It is the most enduring trade embargo in modern history. For many years, the U.S. threatened to stop financial aid to other nations if they were to trade non-food items with Cuba. These sorts of actions have been vocally condemned by the United Nations General Assembly. Despite the existence of the embargo, Cuba can and does conduct international trade with many countries, including many U.S. allies, and Cuba has been a member of the World Trade Organization since 1995. The European Union is Cuba's largest trading partner, and while food business with the U.S. does happen, the Cuban government must pay cash for all U.S. food imports, as credit between the two nations is not allowed. The embargoes went to place in the 50s, when the U.S. imposed an arms embargo on Cuba during armed conflicts between Fidel Castro's rebels and the Batista regime. 
and when Castro did overthrow the government in 1959, relations between Castro and then-U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower were friendly until the U.S. government began making plans to overthrow the Castro administration. By 1961, the U.S. was purchasing less brown sugar from Cuba, and Eisenhower's government refused to export oil to the island, leaving Cuba reliant on Soviet crude oil, which the American companies in Cuba refused to refine. This is when the second embargo, a prohibition against selling all products except food and medicine, was enacted. The Cuban administration responded by nationalizing all American businesses and most American privately owned properties on the island. Castro promised to separate Americans in Cuba from all their possessions. The nationalization law required a country to compensate the owners of the seized property, but compensation to be paid in Cuban bonds an offer the U.S. did not take seriously. Other countries that had their assets nationalized included Switzerland, Canada, Spain, and France. These nations accepted the terms offered by Cuba. U.S. always got to be so difficult, always all up in other people's shit. By the time the Kennedy administration was in power in the U.S., the Bay of Pigs, which was a failed military operation directed by the U.S. government against Castro's Cuban Revolution, failed and further influenced the relations between Cuba and the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Kennedy imposed travel restrictions in 1963, the Cuban Assets Control Regulations, and the Trading with the Enemy Act. These measures froze Cuban assets in the U.S. and consolidated existing restrictions. Proclamation 3447, as was written by Lester D. Mallory, the Assistant Secretary of State in 1960, said, Every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba. The goal of the Kennedy administration was clear, to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow the government. It would be a seesaw of chaos between the U.S. and Cuba in the many years to follow. U.S. citizens' travel to Cuba lapsed in March 1977 and became renewable every six months. But President Jimmy Carter did not reduce, and the spending on U.S. dollars in Cuba was also lifted. President Ronald Reagan reinstated the trade embargo in 82, although it was only restricted to businesses and tourist travel and did not apply to U.S. government officials, persons of news or filmmaking organizations, people doing research, or people visiting close relatives. Today, the current regulation does not prohibit U.S. citizens from traveling to Cuba, but they aren't supposed to transact any money there, so even buying an airline ticket, which part of the cost of a ticket is a tax to the arriving country, make the act of buying the ticket a transnational crime. During the Obama administration, there was a period of Cuban thaw, when Obama eased the travel ban, allowing Americans to freely travel and to send and receive gifts. There were many things in place between Obama and Raul Castro that would have been favorable for both nations. But when Trump's administration took over, everything that was pretty much reversed, and then since Biden administration took over, nothing's changed. For 60-plus years, Cuba has been under the U.S. embargo in some form or another. Many other nations feel like it's time for that to end. It's easy to see the isolating effects of the U.S. embargo throughout the country. The docks are half-empty because the U.S. has banned all cruise ships, cultural exchange, and educational delegations. The Western Union branches are shuttered because the U.S. has banned all remittances through Cuban firms, leaving millions of Cuban families without help from assistance from family and friends abroad. The hospitals in Cuba are understocked because the export of medical technology with U.S. components is banned. There are also shortages of many over-the-counter medicines. 
When you have to pay cash for incoming shipments of medicines and not credit, you can only buy so much. Even the internet in Cuba is isolated since Cubans cannot use Zoom, Skype, Teams, Meta, and all its different apps, etc. to communicate with the outside world. As The Guardian puts it, the U.S. embargo has impacted an eerie aspect of life on the island, and that is precisely the point. Today Biden is kind of living up to Kennedy's legacy and the ambitions of the Cuban embargo. Not only has Biden refused to undo the extraordinary sanctions reversed by the Trump administration, he has doubled down on the embargo, tightened restrictions, and has imposed a host of new sanctions against the Cuban government. Biden's administration claims that these measures are targeted at the regime and not the Cuban people. But the evidence to the contrary is very obvious. Some critics point to the idea that possibly Cuba is unfortunately entering another dreadful special period. Fidel Castro was the ruling leader in Cuba for the majority of all the ups and downs we've mentioned with the United States. And while many see him as a monster and a rogue, many people also looked up to him. While Castro's authority, communism, and isolation are argued by many, he also had many achievements and made such a global impact. Coming to power in an armed revolution against U.S.-backed dictator Batista, Castro's new government was immediately slammed with the embargo by the all-powerful USA. After many invasions, attempted regime changes that failed spectacularly and attempts of assassination, Castro lived on to rule. All the above left to Castro's turn toward communism, and unlike what many believe, he did not always start off as an avowed communist. So what good was there about Fidel Castro? For starters, his internationalism and anti-imperialist credentials are compelling. From apartheid South Africa to Angola and Algeria, Castro inspired and provided support to countless movements that resisted Western colonialism and racism in the latter half of the 20th century. The Cuban Revolution served as an inspiration for liberation movements across the African continent. In subsequent years, Cuba provided support, technical, military, and medical, to these movements and to the fledging governments that resulted from them. In Algeria, Cuba supported the movement for independence from France, its resistance against Morocco's aggression post-independence, and provided support for building medical infrastructure in the new country. Hundreds of Cuban doctors still work in Algeria. Cuban armed forces resisted CIA and apartheid Africa-backed mercenaries to help deliver independence to Angola. Their victory over apartheid South Africa's army in the Battle of Cuitocanvale was a pivotal event in the history of Southern Africa that led, among other things, to the independence of Nambia and the demise of the apartheid state. As with military intervention, this record is not without blemish. But Nelson Mandela's quote about Castro sums up the view of the African liberation movements towards Castro's Cuba. The Cuban people hold a special place in the hearts of the peoples of Africa. The Cuban internationalists have made a contribution to African independence, freedom, and justice, unparalleled for its principled and selfless character. Cubans came to our region as doctors, teachers, soldiers, agricultural experts, but never as colonizers. They have shared the same trenches with us in the struggle against colonialism, underdevelopment, and apartheid. Castro's Cuba also served as inspiration and support to the Palestinian movement, being one of the first countries to recognize the Palestinian Liberation Organization when it was founded in 1964 and provided logistical and vocational training to Palestinians. In the United Nations, Cuba sponsored the 1975 General Assembly Resolution, since rescinded, 
equating Zionism with racism and played a significant role in securing for Palestine the status of a non-member observer state in 2012. Cuban doctors are at the forefront of disaster relief work the world over, including the Kashmir earthquake in 2005 when they sent 2,400 doctors and paramedics and set up 30 field hospitals. It is also interesting to note that in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the U.S. government refused Cuba's offer of sending over 1,500 doctors and medical aid. The chief reason that Castro is a villain in the Western imagination is not his authoritarianism, but his socialism. There are a few facts worth considering before you totally dismiss socialism. The U.S. prefers its client states in the Caribbean to be ruled by their favored dictators. One need look no further than Haiti, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic to see evidence of this. The function of those rulers is to allow American-style capitalism to flourish in their states and for the American corporations to extract the maximum profit from their populations. This was also Baptista's function in Cuba, until he was thrown out. It is believed that Castro would have been a very different leader if the U.S. wasn't so against him, and if the U.S. wasn't so gung-ho to have Cuba remain their little island play place. Because that's essentially what Cuba was until he took over, a place for the U.S. elite and military to play and use resources, and Castro didn't want that for his country. Life expectancy in Cuba is the highest out of most Caribbean countries. The literacy rate is one of the highest, as is the GDP, and infant mortality is one of the lowest. Doesn't sound like a horrible place to be. But of course, socialism and Castro's socialism were flawed, and there are of course valid criticisms about it. But to endure an embargo and a blockade for decades and still deliver economic and human development statistics that exceeded neighboring countries is a huge achievement. When Castro died in December 2016, many Cuban-Americans mourned, but many also celebrated. Castro oversaw some significant human rights wins in his years in power, including dramatic improvements in Cubans' access to health care and housing. He also led an unprecedented drive to improve literacy rates. But despite the good, his reign was also characterized by a ruthless suppression of freedom of expression. Castro retained the death penalty for serious crimes, and the mentality that revolutionary justice was not based on legal perception, but on moral conviction. He said that his nation did not execute innocent people or political opponents, but they executed murderers that deserved it. While Castro is noted for his unwavering commitment to help the African diaspora, in his own country, Afro-Cubans make up the majority of those imprisoned, due to dissent and criticism of the revolutionary government, both acts which are met with imprisonment. We can look at what went on in Cuba as outlandish, or we can actually compare Castro's crimes to parallel them to many of the things that happen here in North America. MLK was labeled an agitator. Cesar Chavez was labeled a communist threat. And Nelson Mandela was at one point considered a terrorist. We're not here to say whether Fidel Castro was a hero or a monster. We're just here to lay out some facts. He did some good, and he did some bad. The same can be said for President Obama, President Emmanuel Macron, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But hey, we're not judging and we're certainly not political people. Another popular name noteworthy in Cuban culture is Che Guevara, but we've yet to mention him. So where did he fit in during all the history we've covered today? Che Guevara was an Argentine-Cuban revolutionary, a theoretician, a tactician of guerrilla welfare, and prominent communist figure in the Cuban Revolution. Today. His image represents an icon to leftist radicalism and anti-imperialism. 
Guevara met the Castro brothers Fidel and Raul in Mexico to overthrow the dictatorship of Batista. He joined Fidel in the 26th of July movement, which landed a force of 81 men in Cuba, who were mostly wiped out in Batista's army. Guevara had originally come to Cuba as a doctor for the rebels, but since he had weapons training, he became one of Castro's most trusted aides. Acting sometimes as a healer, but also sometimes as an executioner, he aided for two years to overthrow Batista's government. Like Castro, many argue the whole hero-monster argument when it comes to Guevara, and like we said before, we're not here to judge anyone's opinion. So even though today Cuba is still under embargoes from the United States, and you won't find regular staples like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, The Gap, or Starbucks anywhere on Cuban soil, Thousands of tourists flock there every year to enjoy the island's beauty and tourism industry. It is noted as an island that assaults the senses. Visitors are greeted with strains of exotic rhythms like salsa and rumba that emanate from every corner of the island, and the aquamarine sea laps the white, palm-fringed beaches all around the country. Cuba's sensual and contagious rhythm have influenced musicians all over the world. Its cigars are legendary, and the delicious cocktails are to die for. With its mix of Spanish and African roots, it is the largest, least commercialized, and because of that, unique island in the Caribbean. It is also one of the world's last bastions of communism with a fascinating history that we've done our best to share with all of you today. Due to the isolation from the more modern, more American world, Cuba has done well to conserve its personality. Due to the embargo, Cuba seems to be lost in time, somewhere in the 50s when trade stopped. It's not just the old American cars in the streets or the exquisite colonial architecture with peeling paint in Old Havana. The concept of modern tourism has somehow bypassed Cuba, giving you a unique experience when you visit. When you travel to Cuba, you step back in time. The very minimal number of cars on the road are from the 50s. People talk to one another instead of staring at their phone screens. You can walk down cobblestone streets with dilapidated facades, listening to someone singing or strumming a guitar. You'll pass overflowing fruit carts and pop-up barbers and hairstylists in the middle of the streets. It's a world away from the homogeneous hustle and bustle of North America. Music and dance are woven into the fabric of everyday life in Cuba. Taxi drivers blast rumba music so loud that pedestrians start dancing in the streets. If you're fortunate enough to travel to Cuba, try to see a concert and make sure to dance. The music scene in Havana is lively, and you can find some sort of jazz event almost every night, as well as Cuban salsa clubs, which are some of the liveliest places to visit. The old American cars, which we've mentioned already, are held together by creativity, determination, and probably prayers. You notice the vintage cars the moment you step out of an airport when you arrive in the country, a for sure sign of the embargo and car buying restrictions. For North Americans, these cars are antiques, but these are the everyday cars of the locals. The people are probably the best part of Cuba. Cubans live their lives in the open, and many are very open and friendly to foreign travelers, even inviting you into their homes. Cuban culture is casual and welcoming. People will teach you dance moves, cook for you, invite you to share a coffee, and offer directions when needed. Street food in Cuba is on the rise in popularity, even over here. While Cuba has never been a top foodie destination, we have the embargo to thank for that, there are so many lovely dishes to try. Cubans have learned to work with what they have. Instead of big chain restaurants, there are paladares. These are little places run by locals out of their homes. Since the 1990s, people have been allowed to open their homes to others for meals. 
I personally have never had a problem with food in Cuba. Sure, there's not the vast selection that you would see at like other inclusive resorts in like Jamaica or Mexico, but the food is good if you know what to eat and are open to trying things that you're not familiar with. So I'm just going to provide some examples. So ropa vieja, which translates to old clothes, may not sound appetizing, but it's an aromatic mix of shredded beef and tomato sauce that originated in Spain. And it's a staple through Latin American countries like Venezuela and Colombia. But ropa vieja is Cuba's national dish. Tough cuts of meat are broken down into long, thin fibers resembling well-worn fabric threads when cooked. Ropa vieja is a favorite that is served in paladares, where it's usually served with congri, Cuban black beans and rice, and a side of fried plantains. Vaca frita is another Cuban staple, which literally translates to fried cow. For this dish, the marinated shredded beef is cooked twice, once to stew and then again pan-fried to make it crispy. It is believed that vaca frita originated in the Canary Islands, where slaves who worked on plantations were challenged with turning tough cuts of meat into edible dishes. And my number three is that um, another popular meat dish is fricas de pollo, a chicken stew that combines cuts of skinless chicken and potatoes in a tomato sauce, adding orange juice and garlic for flavor. Served over white rice and topped with green and black olives, it truly is a delicious dish. Moros y Cristianos is one of Cuba's most popular versions of rice and beans. Unlike many other rice and bean dishes that are cooked in two pots, this one cooks the beans and the rice in one pot, and then sofrito is added for a distinct Cuban flavor. There are a lot of other dishes, picadillo, medianoche, arroz con pollo, and tostones, many of which can be found in many other nations, but Cuba has found a way to make each one very distinctly Cuban, which is why they shouldn't be missed when you visit. Rum, of course, is a big staple in Cuba, and just like many other islands in the Caribbean, Cuba has a lot to offer in this department. Havana Club is Cuba's largest rum brand. It offers nine different expressions in its core range, and prices range from inexpensive to ultra-premium prices, which can retail for several thousand dollars. It is the best distributed Cuban rum and is generally readily available in both Canada and Europe. The Havana Club Añejo, seven-year-old, was the first expression released by the company, and it was designed to be a sipping rum. This is a rich, robust rum with a smooth, silky mouthfeel and a pronounced palate weight. On the nose, it is creamy, with honeyed notes and aromas of caramel, coffee with some tropical spice, dried fruit peel, and notes of apple and pear. On the palate, there are distinct flavors of tropical fruit, along with flavors of milk chocolate, vanilla, and cinnamon, along with some sweet tobacco notes. The finish is exceptionally long and intense, but very smooth. Santiago de Cuba rum is another favorite, especially their Añejo Superior 11-year-old. It is very flavorful and is more reminiscent of Jamaican rum. On the nose, it is exceptionally fruity and aromatic, featuring notes of brown sugar and tropical spices. On the palate, there are pronounced flavors of tropical fruit, including grilled pineapple and green banana, as well as caramel and some intriguing sherry-like notes. There are spice notes of cinnamon and cumin, and a pronounced black pepper note emerges on the end. The finish is long, fruity, and peppery. Cuban coffee, or café cubano, is a sweet espresso drink made with strong, dark roast espresso and sweetened with a thick sugar form. Cafecito is a huge part of Cuban culture and is enjoyed for breakfast. Your café con leche, as a dessert, when you need an afternoon boost and for social gatherings. The major brands of coffee within Cuba are Cubita and Serrano, but really any dark roast espresso can achieve the creamy sweetness of Café Cubano. Just like rum, 
Coffee is at the center of many social gatherings there is all over Cuba, the understood language of Cuban coffee. While Cuba is most obviously a country of immigrants and invaders, the Cuban love of cafecito was born when the Italian espresso machines arrived on the island. Today, Cubans make their coffee with either espresso machines or stovetop espresso makers, known as cafetera, or better known by their Italian name, the mocha pot. We can't do an episode about Cuba and not speak for a moment about cigars. Cuban cigars are some of the most coveted in the world. From Torch Cigar Bar, we learn that the secret behind making high-quality Cuban cigars is in the areas where the leaves are grown and harvested and how it's manufactured. The humidity and heat of Cuba contribute to make the flavor of everyone intense and full. One of the major contributors that make Cuban cigars one of the best in the world is the tobacco quality. History does not explicitly state when the first tobacco of Cuba was harvested, but one thing's for sure, the tobacco existed way before the Spanish came ashore. It was likely the Aztecs of Cuba who discovered tobacco and smoked it into a roll. The Aztecs smoked tobacco for its medicinal value. They found it and introduced it to the Western world, starting the art of smoking. A lot of care and attention goes into making every single Cuban cigar. In fact, it has been estimated that it takes over 100 steps to properly produce a single Cuban cigar. There are a lot of fake Cuban cigars on the market, and genuine Cuban cigars are hard to come by outside of the country, which makes them even more desirable. Another big differentiation between Cuban cigars and others is that Cubans only use Cuban tobacco, whereas other cigarettes and cigars are a blend of various types of tobacco. While the blends can be appealing, and, of course, people do enjoy the flavors, it is common knowledge that the strongest, most authentic smoke is always from a Cuban cigar, and only a Cuban cigar, because there is no mixing. The tobacco is 100% pure. I personally am a fan of Cuba and hope to visit again soon in the next few years. With its rum, revolutionaries, and rich traditions, Cuba's charm is impossible to resist. Trips to Cuba are a visual feast. Classic cars on cobblestone streets between brightly colored, crumbling colonial buildings, white sandy beaches, a patchwork of plantations, fields, and jungles. It's unlike any other island in the Caribbean, which is why I urge people to visit. It offers a unique cultural experience. Thanks for listening, and we hope you found today's episode informative and entertaining. If you did, please remember to like, follow, or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening from right now, and write a review if you can. Reviews and likes help to ensure we're reaching as many people as possible. Also, remember to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and threads at MixedDNA Podcast, and visit our website, MixedDNA.ca, where you can find links to all of our research, contact us, and our storefront to purchase MixedDNA merch. Thanks again for tuning in, and you'll be sure to hear from us again next week. Ciao. Bye.